The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Somebody left me a question, or left Shelley and me a question, um, really good question. Can you comment on the nature of wisdom and its arising? That's a... Uh, Similar to the question, can you comment on the nature of freedom in its arising? Because wisdom is that way of being, that way of relating that is liberating, that understands the causes for liberation. That's what wisdom is interested in. It's what the natural heart is interested in, right? It's interested in release. And uh, <clears throat> then people will wonder, well, what about other people who are suffering? But can, will this heart feel fully released if other, if I'm aware, or if someone, the heart's aware of other beings not released? I don't know. We'll find out when we get there. So I think this is a nice way back to the topic that I started last night. Um, how does wisdom arise? What are the causes for wisdom? So the, the cause for ignorance is being disconnected or not being interested or thinking we already know. So then, therefore, we're not interested, not connecting, not in, intimate. So the cause for wisdom is... Uh, arising out of a humility, a willingness to open, a willingness to be interested, to take a look. And uh, in the tradition, it's understood that as we look at our experience as a human being, one of the first things we realize is that it's a conditional unfolding. And uh, it's not random, <clears throat> And the, we studied that a little bit more and we realized that one aspect of this conditional unfolding is how I'm relating to the present moment, how I'm showing up in the moment, with what kind of attitude, with con what kind of belief system, whether I'm fixed on that belief or holding it lightly. All of that is part of this conditional, lawful unfolding of my experience, my subjective experience, what I'm experiencing as a human being. And that's a powerful, that, that kind of makes us a moral being in the deepest sense of the word, that it matters. And so out of compassion, I try to understand how to live, how to relate, how to be, because my experience, my direct experience has taught me it matters. There are skillful ways to relate, ways that lead to the releasing of my heart and others. And there are ways of relating that are unskillful, that cause suffering for myself and others. And this we can directly observe. This isn't 
this is really our job to, <clears throat> as, as in many moments as we can, like, is that true? Am I feeling that enlivening sense of responsibility that it matters how I'm relating right now? If I'm relating that in a way that dinner is going to change my life, or you know, some the next sense experience, or when this retreat is over, then I'll be happy. Right? So that <clears throat> excuse me, that idea, then we want to track to see if that way of relating, like, oh, I can't wait till this retreat is over, what it actually sets in motion. It makes being here for the last two days or whatever intolerable if we think it's going to be great when it's over or great when it's breakfast or great when I see my cat again or my partner again or whatever we're holding out there or when the knee pain goes away. So the, this arising of wisdom really depends on that basic sense of humility that allows the mind to take a closer look, a fresh look, with a mind that's somewhat imbalanced and has some continuity, tracking the present moment experience, and lo and behold, discovering that, you know, what's, what's really a potent thing aspect of experience in terms of how things are unfolding is how I'm relating. So it really challenges helplessness when we start to see that it matters how I relate. And then we're on the path of knowing the difference between what's skillful and unskillful. Independent of other people telling us. Right, That's sort of the pre- wisdom stage, when we think someone else can tell us what's skillful and unskillful. Real wisdom is realizing that it won't really matter until we see it in our own mind, in our own heart and body. We have to see, oh yeah, this really does cause harm for me and others. This really feels right, seems healing and good for me and others. But we sustain that humility. We don't assume that we know everything. We keep tracking. Because we care. Because we're sort of in the hunt, like we have the scent that if I just study, this is karma, by the way, this cause and effect, how the mind is participating is really the study of karma. And awakening, whatever that is, is just taking this study to the end. Where does the study of cause and effect in terms of how my heart relates to the present moment, what's skillful, what's unskillful, if I'm a really sincere, devoted student, a really paying attention how I'm relating to others, how I'm relating to my own mind, how I'm relating to my own body, I'm relating to everything that's coming and going in terms of planting seeds for suffering, 
immediately stressful and planting seeds for stress, immediately releasing and setting emotion release. And I'm just studying that. Where does that study lead? What kind of human being does one become if we've been studying for a long time with a lot of devotion, a lot of persistence, a lot of forgiveness, a lot of patience, that it matters how I'm relating, how I'm understanding, how I'm showing up. What kind of person do we become? And then we have, you know, from people like the Buddha, some pointing out instructions. I mean, he's basically, his methodology is just what I described. Cultivate a balanced awareness so you can pay attention to the fact that it matters how the mind's relating. It's not about controlling it's just about learning what is a cause for stress and what is a cause for release for ourselves and others. And then living true to that because of the inherent compassion. The whole thing is driven by compassion. Even when we're ignoring cause and effect, oh, it's just, I can't be bothered. It's just easier to think I'm just screwed in life or life is out to get me or it's random. I mean, even that attitude is our way of taking care of ourselves. It's just a, not a very effective way of caring for ourselves. And then whenever we get to the place, because of suffering, to be willing to drop whatever wrong beliefs we might have and take a fresh look, that also arises out of compassion. And the de dedicated study of cause and effect how I'm relating and what that, what kind of seeds that plants, that's also driven by compassion. <clears throat> and sort of uh, the related question then in terms of the, um, one of the main topics last night, um, that someone who has been practicing well is someone who is peaceful with conditions and the general practice that person has done to become peaceful with condition, conditions with what is showing up. Does, and remember, peaceful with conditions does not mean passivity. It just means if you're acting really intensely, you're peaceful with those conditions. If you're lying on the couch, you're peaceful with those conditions. It's not telling you what conditions to be peaceful with. Conditions also include what our personality is doing, what the mind is thinking, what the body is doing, right? Peaceful, as we do, whatever we do. That's what conditions mean. It means like what's happening, what's moving in the body and the mind. Peaceful with that. Not what the body and mind should do, but to be peaceful with it. Right? There's a famous uh, teaching from Shanti Deva, this, uh, I think, ninth-century Buddhist monk and saint, well-known figure in the tradition, and the Dalai Lama likes to quote this person. He was a, an Indian monk, or what is now India. Why be unhappy about something if it can be remedied? Right? Do it. And what is the use of being unhappy about something if it cannot be remedied? Now, maybe a better word than unhappy here, just because it can be provocative to say that. 
what is the use of being tight about something if it cannot be remedied? Does it, like in terms of climate change or uh, the criminal justice system being uh, in need of significant change, right? Or issues of class or issues of race and the kind of harm that's being perpetuated, exploitation of people without a lot of power, right? Or just people who live in the wrong place where there's war or something like that. Does it help, like even if we think about it, does it help to get tight? The question really is, is there something to do, is there not something to do? If there's something to do, do it. If there's not something to do, you don't understand that there's something to do, then you don't understand that there's something to do. But the question is, is it okay? Is it useful, skillful to be peaceful, to be not tight? whether there's something to do or there's nothing to do in this moment as, as much as we can tell. So we learned, you know, from these early discourses that the Buddha describes the fruit of practice as the someone who practice being peaceful with condition becomes someone who is peaceful with conditions. And in particular, they were told to check out, pay attention to two places, views and the mind's relationship, the heart's relationship to sense experience. In terms of practicing being peaceful with conditions. So as we operate in the world, we're always operating with views, beliefs, whatever you want to call them, opinions, so the question is how to relate to the views. I don't I can't imagine, maybe you can, but I can't imagine living without views or opinions or beliefs, perspectives. And any of those things, a view, let's just say, is just one of those conditions that arise in the moment. Right? Because conditions are those things that arise in moments internal conditions, external conditions, mental conditions, physical conditions. So an opinion, a view, is just one thing that arises. And the interesting question to observe, going back to the question that the person asked about how does wisdom arise, well, wisdom is paying attention to causes. The cause in particular, because wisdom and compassion come together, wisdom is interested in the causes for suffering and the causes for release of suffering. So then the Buddha gives us a pointing out instruction. Okay, so let's study opinions or views and which ways of relating to views cause suffering and what ways of relating to views release suffering. And nobody, it's not about listening to an authority, it's about feeling empowered to check it out. It doesn't actually matter what other people discovered. What matters, what do we discover when we look at our views or even study other people when we're interacting with them and how they're relating to their views, right? Because we learn from observation of others 
right? Just, I don't know which is more, but we learn from both for sure. Watching others, observing others, observing our own heart and mind and body. So, as a condition, just to sort of check out what the Buddha says, you know, relating to views in a peaceful way, in a non-fixed way, is that plant seeds of suffering or not? Plant seeds of release. What is skillful relating to opinions and views in a fixed way or in a non-fixed way? It's like one teacher, forgetting who it was now, you know, thought whenever we say something, you know, just add, well, but who knows? Or maybe not so. That's why that line that I just translated a few moments ago, Ehi Pasiko, is one of the real sort of emblems of the Buddhist teachings. You have to check it out. You have to check it out for yourself. What's true for you? What do you find to be true? If you find something that works, that's true for you, then live, respect it, to try to do your best to live in accordance with it. But keep, don't assume you're right just because it's, you know, the initial evidence has come in and it seems this is skillful or this is unskillful. We always continue to track. How about now? We don't think we're going to get to the end of it like we check it out and now we know because that sounds a lot like a fixed view. I missed the Sutta study group at Common Ground this morning, um, and uh, I usually help lead that and always write the uh, discussion theme, and we're reading one of Ajahn Tanisaro's books, Self and Not Self, I think it's called. Um, and it's just interesting, there are a lot of opinions out there <laughs> about this teaching, and it's really ironic if people have fixed views about this, <laughs> which they tend to have fixed views about these things. And the question isn't whether they're right or wrong. The question is, is the fixed view, the fixedness of the view, a cause for happiness or stress? Is it helpful to, have, to be dependent or fixed on the view? And remember what I said, just because it's easy to misunderstand this, can't live without views. I'm not advocating, or no one's advocating, to somehow imagine that we can live without opinions or views or perspectives or not making choices or something like that. It's just how we're relating to the views we're using, how we're relating to the opinions we're using, the perspectives we're using. And that's why we have this term in Buddhism called skillful means. Like, it's something that I'm using now, but I'm never pretending the wisdom work of studying cause and effect is over. So even as I'm using a view, using an opinion, I have that who knows tagged on, and I'm studying it because I have a lot of compassion for my own suffering and for the suffering of others. 
and I want to use all conditions that are showing up in my life skillfully. And I know I have this very particular band that matters, and that is how I'm relating to conditions. That, in a funny way, don't take this too literally, is sort of the Buddhist equivalent of free will. This is another one of those topics that people have a lot of fixed views about. Free will, no... Buddhism teaches no free will, you know, or whatever people think and then cling to. It's a practical question about when is it skillful to feel like it's important that I do something, (laughs) right? And when is it not skillful to think that my actions matter, right? And I'm suggesting that for a long time, until it becomes your habit, it's useful to think it really matters that I pay attention to how I'm relating in terms of whether it's skillful or not. And skillful again means is this way of relating planting seeds of suffering for myself and others? Is this, is this way of relating planting seeds for release? It really matters. And it only stops mattering when it's so part of the habit energy of the mind that you don't need to construct the idea that it matters. Right? Because it's been internalized. And that would be extra at that point. Paying attention to cause and effect, paying attention to what's skillful and unskillful. And this is what gets people away from this. This is another one of those places people have opinions, you know, especially throughout the Buddhist you know, all the different forms of Buddhism that have arisen over the centuries. It's like, can an enlightened being, do they have to be worried about karma, about unskillful actions, or are they beyond it? Well, the reason they're beyond it is because that sincere and dedicated and unwavering, compassionate commitment to observe the skillfulness and unskillfulness of how the mind is relating has become a force of nature. It's been so conditioned into the mind that it's unwavering. There's this great line from another famous Buddhist person who, one of the people bringing Buddhism up into Tibet uh, many, many centuries ago, Padmasasambhava. And uh, he supposedly said, although my view is as vast as the sky, right? big view just like uh, not in terms of the solar system not in terms of the galaxy not even in terms of the sort of known universe really big view just stuff happening my attention to karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour my attention to what gets set in motion by how I'm relating by what I'm doing is so refined, so careful, because I care. And there's no opposition between the big view, it's just a natural process, just everything in motion, including this profound and sincere and compassionate, refined attention to karma. That's also nature. Just because things are vast and impersonal, 
doesn't mean that that attention to what matters on this relative level is abandoned. Because it's exactly that that got the mind to open to the bigger view. What would think, oh, I don't have to be a good person anymore? <laughs> you know, it's like, how would we, someone imagine that, you know, somebody who has really been attentive to cause and effect and to planting seeds, that really full of care about not planting seeds of suffering, it sounds like it's coming from a really personal place. And initially, that's exactly where it comes from because that's what's happening. I'm a person who doesn't want to stu- uh, suffer. So I really pay attention to that. In the other place, the Buddha says to bring that refined attention, of course, is the area of sensuality, of sense experience. It's not about judging sense experience as bad. This is another one of those places people have a lot of opinions, fixed views. You know, it's very easy, I bump up in this all the time, where people just, whenever they hear the teachings, they sort of dig in because they they have this idea that there isn't much to life, but there's some real beauty, you know, and I'm not, I'm not willing to put that down. Or at other moments, people have been burnt enough they don't see any beauty in the world and they don't want to hear about it because whatever beauty there is, it's contaminated because it's arising on the backs of oppressed people or oppressed beings. So is that really beautiful anyway? And so it's very easy to be fixed about the world of experience is beautiful or good, or the world of experience is bad, not worth clinging to, not worth attachment. And the Buddhist teaching is, if you care about your life, if you care about suffering, you should study this. We have everything we need to study how we're relating to sense experience, because we're relating to it all the time. You know, the pain in the body, the temperature of the air, what we think people are thinking about us, what I'm thinking about other people. These are all sense experiences, what we see, what we hear, what we think about what we're seeing and hearing and touching. We're either thinking about sense experience or experiencing sense experience. And all of that, all of that, we're relating, right? In each moment, we're relating in a particular way. And the relevant question, I think, is, is the way right now that I'm relating to sense experience stressful and planting seeds of stress, or easeful and planting seeds of ease? Uh, yeah, planting seeds of ease. Isn't that the relevant question? in terms of how we relate to sense experience. I wish I could remember this when I'm reading the news. You know, is the way I'm relating to the news planting seeds of stress or planting seeds of release? Mm -hmm. 
And it's not the news, it's the way the mind is relating to the news. Is there a way to relate to the news, to read the news that is wholesome, that plants seeds of ease for myself and others? And the Buddha made a big deal of how what happens when we relate to sensuality, to sense experience, as if it's supposed to deliver. That sort of one of the more profound teachings that we've heard probably before is this teaching um, titled sometimes the second dart. But it that you know, the kind of basic thing we hear about that discourse from the Buddha is that, you know, the problem of suffering is that as a human being having sense experience, something arises and we react to it in a way that is a a second dart, like if something unpleasant arises and then we don't like that it's arisen and then the not liking it is the second dart. And as a human being, inevitably, we're going to have difficult experience arises. There's the, you know, gain and loss and pleasure and pain and fame and disrepute and praise and blame. They're just these different dynamics that are going to touch us inevitably. And they will be unpleasant at times as conditions change. And it really is important how the mind relates to that. And so the deeper teaching in this discourse on the dart, second dart, kind of goes like this. So again, you know, and this is hopefully nothing new. We've been paying attention. Um, Unpleasant sights, unpleasant sounds, unpleasant smells, unpleasant tastes, unpleasant touches, and unpleasant thoughts about some combination of some extent sense experience, well, they arise, right? We have unpleasant experience. And the Buddha would say, I just, I'm paraphrasing the discourse, when our mind is untrained, then we don't really know what to do. We're not really skillful in terms of what we do when unpleasant experience arises. We don't really know an escape when our knee hurts when we're bored, when we're lonely, when we have some painful memory tormenting us, right? We don't know what to we have that sort of energetic restlessness, can't get settled. We don't know what to do except we know one thing. What what do we do? I mean just honestly think about sometime today. What do we do when we're feeling tormented by something that's unpleasant? What do we seek? What do you seek when you're having a lot of unpleasant? Why do I turn to the news? Distraction. Yeah. But distraction, we want a pleasant distraction, right? We don't seek out an unpleasant distraction. So that's what the Buddha says. Ordinary human beings, well, all human beings, even the sage who's peaceful with conditions, all human beings experience unpleasant experience. It just comes with the territory. And then 
an untrained human being experiencing unpleasant doesn't know what to do with it, if, especially if it persists, so they look for a distraction, a pleasant distraction. Right? And see, then that skews the mind's relationship with pleasant experience. Because all of a sudden, pleasant experience, whatever it might be, the mind now has a dependent relationship on it. So he talks about how we go to pleasant. I'm going to go outside. It will be more pleasant than in that dank meditation hall. Well, it's too hot outside. I'm going to go into the cool space again. So we're looking for something pleasant, hoping that it will fix, that it will alleviate the tightness of the person feeling oppressed by unpleasantness. So our relationship to pleasantness is to fix a problem the self has, right? And then that further distorts the mind because when we start looking at pleasant experience from a dependent point of view, we start to more and more ignore neutral experience, right? It changes the mind, the heart's relationship to all of neutral experience, which of course is most of experience. (laughs) Most of our life is relatively neutral, not obviously pleasant or obviously unpleasant. But all of a sudden, as this dynamic, you know, weaves its way, repeats itself, Our relationship to unpleasant, the groove that gets cut is run from it. It's the only thing you know to do. Seek distraction. That distorts our relation to pleasant because now pleasant exists to fix a person who doesn't like unpleasant. Does it work? Kind of, but not for long. That's the problem. There's real gratification. I mean... When I walk outside and it's really nice, it's nice for a while. Like those first 15, 30, 45 seconds of sitting by the lake and seeing the light and the feeling, it's just in the big sky. It's really nice, but then it's, it doesn't stand out after a few seconds. And then I'm looking, I don't know, some of you, I think Sandy noticed, there's this very cute little snapping turtle that walked right in front of me during the Qigong. I don't know if you noticed I was distracted. (laughs) And then walked over by where Sandy was standing. Hopefully it found its way to water. It wasn't that big. So, here's what the Buddha says. Resolves that... so, So, basically, not paying attention, following habit energies we have a, um, an unskillful relationship to unpleasant, an unskillful relationship to pleasant, and an unskillful relationship to neutral. And so the cumulative effect is we don't feel like we belong. It doesn't feel like life works. It feels like something's wrong. I think I need a drink. <laughs> I got a text from Wynn. Uh, just a little bit ago, I sent her a text that said, how's my sweetheart doing? Because we haven't communicated all week, except just a couple texts. And uh, 
and uh, she sent me this little note that said, uh, 12 hours in my office without HVAC. All my students are registered. She's uh, an advisor, has a new set of freshmen that she's advising and is responsible for getting them all registered. First year course is planned. I'm going to have my, oh, I'm going to sit down with Bear, our cat, and have a glass of wine, and he's having sweet cream. <laughs> right? Sense pleasure. And it will work for a while, you know? So the Buddha, like everything, he says you really want to study gratification because it, not studying gratification leads to a wrong idea of asceticism that he really pointed out, he found out from his own practice, doesn't work. Rejecting sense experience isn't helpful. Having a negative view of sense experience isn't helpful. Just like expecting uh, pleasant sense experience to make a difference in the end is not going to help. But also, thinking that rejecting sense experience, having a negative attitude of sense experience is going to help, doesn't turn out to be skillful. And that's this middle way. And this is what he says at the end of that discourse on the second dart. The dart discourse. Having, having been touched by that painful feeling, one does not resist and resent it. Right. So this is now someone who's been observing cause and effect for a while. Pain shows up. If there's something you can do about it, we'll do it. If you can stretch out your limb, it's not going to bother anybody. It's not going to create a bad habit where you're always moving endlessly. Well, then do it. But if you don't think it's a skillful thing to do, well, then there's nothing you can do. So we practice not resenting the pain that's there that's not going to go away. Not resisting, not resenting it, because it's not skillful to do that. Hence, no underlying tendency of resistance against that painful feeling comes to underlie one, one's mind. Under the impact of that painful feeling, one does not proceed right, to seek out distraction, pleasant, sensual happiness. Why not? As a well-taught student of the Buddha, one knows of an escape from the painful feeling other than seeking distraction. I know how to be with pain. I know how not to resist it and how not to resent it. Oh, sometimes it's like this. So then our decision to go get a cup of tea or to go outside or to sit down with the cat and have a glass of wine, then that can be made for another reason. Like, doesn't harm anybody. There's nothing wrong with sense pleasure, right? The Buddha said, there's no reason to reject sense pleasure. You know, sometimes really wealthy people invited the Buddha for lunch. He didn't say, no, no, only bad food. No, <laughs> when, when good food was available, he took good food. It's not like we forget or can't tell the difference between what's more pleasant and what's less pleasant. It's just a question, 
It's just that the heart is putting in the forefront not wanting to plant the seeds of suffering. That's all. So if sitting down and having a glass of wine doesn't do that, for it doesn't seem to be planting the seeds of suffering, then maybe it's okay. But we shouldn't have a fixed view that sitting down and having a glass of wine is okay. We should be tracking it to see what kind of seeds it plants. And that might seem stressful, but it's not. It's really a loving thing to do. It's a beautiful thing to do, to care enough to see whether this is helping. Because then we can adjust in real time. I've done that in my second bowl, generally not my first bowl of ice cream, but sometimes in my second bowl or second bowl of food, you know, like this isn't helping anymore. You know, and I'll just put a plate over it and stick it in the fridge. Freezer, if it's the ice cream. <laughs> Until another time when it will be. I went to the store today to pick up some bananas and some chocolate-covered pretzels <laughs> and some sparkly water. And uh, I, I, I didn't quite comprehend that word, and you don't need to repeat it. <laughs> Just because I put it in the fridge doesn't mean it's mine. <laughs> But it would be a really interesting thing for whoever has shouted that out. <laughs> Looking in the fridge, right? Like, is this skillful? What seeds are being planted? Did he offer it? Is it freely offered? Is it thievery? You know? And the thing is, the truth of it is there in the heart by like what gets planted. That's how we know. But we should, know, we should never think we really know we want to keep watching, keep... It, something may appear to be skillful. That's why the Buddha, in, when his talk to Rahula, his son, when his son was quite young, as a little novice in the Sangha, the monastic Sangha, he was like seven or eight, said you should, you know, you should be observing whether something's skillful or unskillful before you act, while you're acting, and after you've acted. And this can seem oppressive, like Sharon's great line, the, what did she call it, the torment of continuity. There's something, initially it feels overwhelming to have to, to feel responsible for every moment of the mind relating. And so the Buddha teaches us about the danger of not doing that. It's like, that inspires us. Yeah, it is It is hard to sort of set that habit in motion. But we don't do it because the Buddha said. We do it because we begin to see little by little. We don't do it all at once. We see little by little. It grows in our heart. It matters. So I want to do this. I, I get to do this. I get to pay attention because I want to. Because it matters. It's how I take care of everybody and myself. There's really no way, there's no way to consider ourselves compassionate, a skillful human being, a loving human being, a responsive or an activist, if we're not watching our heart in this way. If we're not 
interested in the seeds that are, that are being planted, how are we going to know whether we're part of the problem or part of the solution? But we have to actually observe what's getting set in motion. We can't, otherwise we're operating with a fixed idea. When this gets done, then the world will be better or I'll be better or my family will be better. But what happens if we're wrong? And you know, human history tells us most of the time we've been wrong. <laughs> you know, in terms of how we've operated in our families and in our communities and in our world. In a way, our intention was correct. We wanted to be happy and presumed others then would be happy. But we often make a mess of it. I mean, think about how obsessed we are with tragedies. We're trying to get it. You know, all the sort of works of art that somehow try to capture the tragic nature, which is basically this story. I wanted to be happy, but I made a mess of it. I was trying to be happy, but I really screwed it up. I mean, that's the basic story of tragedy, right? And the real tragedy is people who go down having messed it up, but not wanting to acknowledge that. So they, they tell themselves a lie and everyone else lies. No, I did mess it up. It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. So then there's no learning. At least with tragedy... There's the beginning. I wanted to be happy. I screwed it up. I'm really unhappy. I'm sure many of you have heard that poem. I, I don't have it with me right now. Um, oh, yeah, I can't remember the title even. But about walking down the sidewalk, falling in the hall. Don't know how I got here. Somebody else's fault. Next day, walking down the sidewalk, fall in the same hall. I don't know if the second day when they realize, um, still not my fault, you know, who put this hole here? But eventually it's like, I fell in the hole again, but at least I know it's my fault, right? And eventually I walk down another street. Maybe I'll track that down and put it up in the bulletin board because I didn't do very much justice to the poem. But, but you get the idea at least, right? It's sort of, taking responsibility for how we relate to views and how we relate to sense experience. And we study it. Is this helpful? Is it unhelpful? What seeds are being planted? What's getting set in motion here? As I mentioned, uh, or was about to mention, that the Buddha has some really graphic images of speaking this basic, you know, going back to sensuality, this expectation that pleasure is going to make a difference. And I'll just name some of these images. The first one that comes to mind, because I was just on the north shore of Lake Superior a week ago, and uh, just for a couple of days, and even though there's a sign saying you're not supposed to feed the seagulls, somebody in a, in a condo or a room next to mine, I think at the balcony above mine, were throwing out, it was, uh, we were looking right over the lake and there's some rocks there and they were throwing some bread or something out and the, the seagulls are amazing. You know, one will get it and then they all attack the one who has it. Mm-hmm. And the Buddha used this image, I don't know if he used seagulls, but some bird, you know, 
that this is what pursuing pleasure through sense experience is like. And this is what I meant, um, although it, it's not always obvious, but a lot of our pleasure is on the backs of other creatures. And there would be a lot of creatures and other human beings that would like the sense pleasures that we get to have, but we keep them at a distance, you know, through our immigration policies or, you know, all the different ways that we sort of protect our sense delights, our comforts, our orderly. So it's not that different than the seagulls, the messiness of the seagulls. We have the privilege of imagining that we deserve the comforts we have. And that's sort of, it's interesting in the monastic um, tradition, they have this thing around food that's very interesting and a little intense. Um, But it's because they live, just to be provocative, they live as beggars. Right, they receive offerings from the lay people. Otherwise, they don't eat. They can't store in the traditional rules. They can't store food overnight, um, with a few medicinal exceptions. And uh, so every day they got to go get food if they're going to eat. And the idea is because of what I just said that there's a cost to everything. Right? Nothing comes without harm. We live in a world where life eats life. That's just the way it is. And we don't want to pretend that it's otherwise. So if I'm going to participate, I should be living in a way that makes the inevitable harm that my existence creates, that the benefit of my life outweighs the harm that happens just through living. I said that's a little heavy, but it's also quite beautiful. It <clears throat> it's used in the monastic tradition to evoke a sense of spiritual urgency, not to be complacent, not to think that living a life of relative comfort. I mean, I feel this so strongly of just wanting not a fancy place, just a simple place. <laughs> in the woods with big trees but open so I have view but simple you know that's energy efficient doesn't waste energy you know with a all electric car that's charged only with solar panels that were made responsibly not with by exploiting the workers and and somehow we imagine this utopian where somehow my impact will be negligible. You know, I'll just eat the fruit that falls from the tree and I'll even plant the seeds of the fruit so that we've got the symbiotic relationship with the fruit tree. But it just doesn't work that way. You know, it's sort of life, um, we're always stepping on each other's toes. And so we want to really own that and let it break our heart open 
to pay attention and to live a life of integrity for the highest cause, which is suffering and the end of suffering, really understanding how understanding how that can be integrated into this heart, how we can be sort of models of non-harming. That's our gift. That is the radical act of a practitioner. This is uh, activist work. This is not retreating from the world. This is what the world needs. So there are many other of these really potent images. I'll just kind of go through, through them very quickly. The first one is chain of bones, is the image, right? where the butcher is so skilled, has such a sharp knife, that they're able to cut the meat off the bones so there's nothing left on the bones except, you know, tendon. And then they throw the bones to the dog and the dog, hopeful that there's some nourishment in the bones, chews, 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 but doesn't get any nourishment. This is another image the Buddha uses for our mind's relationship with sense experience. Expecting it to be satisfying maybe even bloodying our gums, but it's not satisfying. <laughs> and these are just interesting images that the Buddha used. I thought I'd just share them. The next one is a grass torch. You know, like if you have a long uh, reeds and grass, and then maybe you put a little wax on it or something to, so it would burn like a torch so you could see in the dark, but it's really windy in the wrong direction. <laughs> right? That's like our relationship to thinking that getting what we like is a responsible, workable approach to happiness. Trying to line things up, trying to line up sense pleasures. I mean, if any of you have been in a long-term relationship where you were trying to be happy by being in relationship with this person, like they're going to make me happy? It doesn't work, I think. It doesn't work. I mean, it'd be nice to hear examples of it working. I'm not saying that there can't be healthy and beautiful relationships, but I'm guessing that most of those are happening, or when they happen, it's because the, the couple, they're not expecting the other person to make them happy. That's why they're getting along. That's why they're having a good relationship. They're not dependent on that person making them happy. Same with cats. When we're dependent on the cat or the dog making us happy, it gets a little weird and neurotic. <laughs> when we were leaving New York, when and I were living at a spiritual center in New York City where we met, and then we decided to leave together and before we left, we took uh, one of my early teachers out to lunch. Um, Wynn and I did, and we took a taxi to place. And on the taxi ride back, and, he, and he, he's a really deep meditator and uh, has a very refined mind, a little bit psychic maybe, I don't really know, but seems a little bit. And he, he was kind of just sort of doing some riffs on who we are, and he said, yeah, you, you both are pretty sensual types, you know, yeah, you might want a cat. 
<laughs> right? So you're not putting that expectation on each other, you know, like to be the furry beast for each other. We can have that furry beast. It's a little less toxic to sort of have that needy relationship with a four-legged furry creature that has been, you know, probably evolved through their interactions with humans to tolerate humans' emotional needs <laughs> for warmth and affection and, you know, whatever. And cats are just frustrating enough to help you remember that you're not going to get what you want. But you always think, maybe, this is for a few moments. And then there's the bed of red-hot embers being dragged across that. Another one, interesting, the dream that vanishes. You're like, how... This is the gratification. Dreams can be very interesting, very intoxicating and beautiful. And then it ends. You know that feeling when a really nice dream ends? And you wake up? Right? It's like, oh. And you remember your to-do list and your achy body and this... (laughs) And compared to the dream, it's like, <clears throat> I know not all dreams are that way, but... And then the the last one of these similes is, uh, yeah, you borrowed a lot of nice stuff. You got a nice car, you got a nice set of clothes, and, you know, someone's lent you their fancy cell phone, and just have maybe a nice cabin in the woods, and nice this and nice that, and then you got to give it back because it's not yours. And this is another uh, simile that points to the feeling, to the experience of our relationship with sense experience. So just to summarize again, in these early teachings, these earlier teachings that are much less adorned, ornate, complicated, supernatural, the Buddha describes The point of practice is to be a sage, a person that is peaceful with conditions by practicing being peaceful with conditions. And in particular, take a look, bring this balanced attention to how the mind relates to view, opinions, perspectives, and how the mind relates to sense experience. And really study what's skillful and unskillful. And see, by studying karma in that way, does the mind naturally, not through any choice of the person, does the mind-heart naturally gravitate towards non-clinging, non-grasping, non-attachment? Because otherwise, non-attachment becomes a big should or an imitation. We pretend to be non-attached, because that's what a Buddhist is supposed to be, (laughs) or that's what my friends think is cool. It's just a, it would be a, just an organic arising as the heart moves in the direction of peace and ease. This is how it expresses that peace and ease, through non-attachment to views and non-attachment to sense experience. Now that seems pretty grounded. Remember, uh, some of you did the year-end retreat, I think it was just last year-end retreat, but it could have been two years ago, where I used that uh, teaching. It's actually a riff on something in the suttas, but Ajahn Chah used that image of you know taking a log, throwing it out in the middle of a river, 
He says, that's like our job as a practitioner. We're a log that's been thrown out into a river. And on one side of the river is uh, attachment to happiness, attachment to pleasure. And on the other side of the river is identification with pain. And our job is not to get confused by the bank, the two banks, happiness and unhappiness. So when pleasure comes our way, how to relate to it in a way that's skillful. When um, pain comes our way, how to relate to it in a way that's skillful. And all of life will be floating down. We're going to be proximate to pleasure and pain the whole way down the river. So in every moment, we're, this is the, that's why the vigilance of being interested, well, how's the mind relating to whatever it is now? Pleasure, pain, happiness, unhappiness, interesting sight, boring sight, interesting sensations, painful sensations, interesting thought, disturbing thought. What's the skillful way to relate? Is this a skillful way to relate? Is ignoring it skillful? What does that set in motion? Trying to control my experience, is that skillful? What does that set in motion? Wanting somebody to save me. Thinking that nothing works. Wanting to give up. What does that set in motion? Does that help? So it's a very pragmatic and empowered way to relate to our experience. And it's not easy, as we have all found out. <laughs> so we get off the saddle and we become the complainer or the helpless one or the distracted one or, you know, whatever we do until eventually we wake up and realize this isn't helping. It's not a long-term strategy. I wonder what will work. Well, I don't have anything else to do. Maybe I'll check out what the Buddha says. So we get back on the saddle. So now it's time to get back on the saddle. <laughs> not that we've been off it, but just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Thanks for listening. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.